Hello from London, uh, still light out, thankfully. I'm so delighted to be able to speak to you today. It means a lot to me as OT7 alumni of Trinity College, University of Toronto, but to return, however spectrally, to a formative site of my thinking, especially now that my scholarly practice has been shaped by the entangled threads of the different fields of critical race and ethnic studies. Today, as Amanda um, introduced, I'm presenting from my first book, Disaffected, the Cultural Politics of Unfeeling in 19th Century America, which is forthcoming from Duke University Press. As a non-Black scholar, settler scholar of color, the writing of this project came out of reflecting on my own unfeeling alienation and of those dear to me through taking seriously the ongoing act of reading queer and feminist of color theory as theory in the flesh. As a junior scholar myself, I often wish that those further along um, would, would expose their vulnerabilities sometimes when talking about the research. And so that is a bit of my aim today. And indeed, my whole thinking about unfeeling is also thinking about form strategic vulnerability and in, um, invulnerability. I am here spectrally as a product of what scholar Lisa Lowe has termed the intimacy of four continents, the entanglements of black enslavement, indigenous genocide, an Asian indentured servitude that constitute modernity. I was born, have lived, and was educated on the lands of the Anishinaabe, Mi'kmaq, Cayuga, and the Musqueam peoples. My family is from the abandoned colonial outpost of Hong Kong, and now working for the former institution that founded eugenics in the former heart of empire, where as of this year, I believe there are only 27 black women who hold position as full professors. I've been called a machine, accused of being cold, I've chosen to remain expressionless when racist and sexist microaggressions of everyday life have been directed at me. Sometimes the performance of being unaffected is the form of resistance that enables immediate survival and denies them the satisfaction of our affectability. One friend writes she's had a lifetime of suppressing emotions in order to make sure she can get through situations. A moment of quotidian discursive violence happens in a professional setting. You, junior and precarious, weigh your vulnerability and might choose to be unresponsive. But then we turn to our chosen communities where we can be vulnerable in these often oblique social spaces to process, to be seen, to support one another, to organize. I'm attentive to how my friendships, in particular with Black, Indigenous, and other women and queers of color, are what the praxis of coalition looks like. Scenes repeat themselves. A white activist centers their guilt at a Black Lives Matter candlelight vigil. Settlers take over a space meant for Indigenous students. Cisgender heterosexual allies complain about ex exclusion from LG LGBTQ2S+. White fragility shatters in front of us. We exchange side glances as we refuse to wipe away the tears, and then in our alternative social spaces, in group tech messages and hidden social media groups, we commiserate and strategize on formal and informal levels. We have had to become so strong, so impervious, so seemingly invulnerable. If we expose our sensitivities, we are soon scarred. Where we were once thin-skinned, as it were, we develop a thick skin to endure the abrasions of everyday life, a protective callousness. A friend calls attention to my impenetrable emotional armor that I wield in tandem with detached professionalism to keep others at bay. As effective a strategy as that might be, I have shifted more effective labor onto others, so I must learn to be strategically vulnerable. Across geographies and time zones, we help each other balance the tactics of disclosure with withholding to make sure we can still be responsive and responsible to those we love. Together, we guard our tendernesses beneath the shield of disaffection. 
white feelings, white tears, white fragility, white women's tears, white men's tears. These phrases circulate within popular anti-racist social justice discourse galvanized by Black Lives Matter. These phrases articulate frustration with the ongoing everyday manifestations, what scholars have variously called the unfinished business of sentimentality, the legacies of intimacies of four continents, and the biopolitics of feeling. From their origins in academic analyses at the, the naming of weaponization of white feelings, the popular phrases white fragility and white tears, along with their variants, have evolved into something more. Behind these uses is the implicit statement, we have known, have always known, that white feelings produce and maintain structures of domination. To depend upon white feelings as the catalyst for social change reinscribes the very world that enables their power. No more business with white sentimentality. Withhold from those colonial intimacies. Refuse to feel according to the hierarchies of the biopolitics of feeling. We are disaffected. We know that effective labor is unevenly distributed. What if we refuse the demand to perform our feelings according to the politics of recognition? We are expected to be sympathetic to power in order to be seen as sympathetic. I argue that universal sympathy has operated as the colonial strategy of engulfment to subordinate non-Western taxonomies and paradigms of affect, emotion, and feeling as mere variations, if not outright, to invalidate them beyond the threshold of recognition as feeling. In this sense, sympathy functions as the fundamental condition of effective intelligibility for the spectrum of feelings in all degrees of expressivenesses and intensities. Following Black feminist thinkers like Sylvia Winter and Denise Ferrer de Silva, if the category of man, bourgeois Western whiteness, overrepresents itself as universal humanity structured upon the suppression of racialized modalities of the human as mere derivations, then I conclude that the construct of universal feeling operates as symptom and signifier of that ontological coloniality, both product and producer of the intimate transnational violences of imperialism that have made possible Western modernity. According to De Silva, affectability defines raciality. What she calls the transparent eye has the agency to know and affect, while the affectable eye is a susceptible scientific construction of non-European minds in her words. As scholar Tyrone S. Palmer observes, De Silva's term affectability, although not written with affect studies in mind, points to the inextricability of affect from power. But I suggest that one could be disaffected instead of affectable. Disaffections can converge and enable alternative structures of feeling. The apparent antisociality of unfeeling points towards reimagining the social. I am interested, I am interested in unfeeling, not as the usual understanding as oppression from above, but as tactic from below. So in this regard, I take unfeeling not simply as negative feelings, but as that which cannot be recognized as feeling, the negation of feeling itself. I foreground unfeeling with disaffection in its effective, causal, and political meanings. First, I explore unfeeling in both the responsive and demonstrative senses as quotidian tactic of survival that indexes an under-acknowledged spectrum of dissent that may not be legible or instrumentalized towards resistance and vilified for its transgressive potential. Second, I reconsider unfeeling as the critique of the demands of sympathetic recognition shaped by sentimentalism, questioning the liberal project of inclusion. Finally, these antisocial affects may only be perceived as such and vilified because of their insurgent potential for enabling new structures of feeling to arise through deliberate alienation. That is, the reading of unfeeling as oppositional negation functions to conceal the flourishing and renewal of alternative forms of sociality made possible by feeling otherwise. 
The spirit of my work owes much to both Lee Edelman's insistence on the validity of the antisocial queer theory, as well as to Jose Esteban Munoz's response that affirms queer color critique in particular can look to the general possibilities beyond the normative through attending to the horizon of queerness as an opening. In my book, I trace a representative array of queer, racialized, and gendered modes of disaffected unfeeling, emergent within existing structures of feeling from a range of precarious positions within the axes of repression that constitute the biopolitical hierarchy, such as uh, a few that I name, like unsympathetic blackness, queer frigidity, and oriental inscrutability, as categories that collapse nuances of difference. These nascent, fleeting, and sometimes failed modes of marginalized affects capture transgressive desires, ambivalences about relationality, and complicated investments that cannot be readily recuperated into the trajectory of liberal politics may even be damaging and counter-effective. Affect studies has a race problem. We can recall that W.E.D. Du Bois begins the souls of Black folk with the question, how does it feel to be a problem? Despite theorist Sara Ahmed's oeuvre on how effective economies shape the significations and relations of individual and collective bodies, and C.N. Nye's work on racialized animatedness and to some extent irritation, they remain exceptions regardless of their influence. Work by David L. Eng and Jasper Poir have enabled us to better understand how affect operates on geopolitical and transnational scales through diaspora, kinship, stability, and capacity. And yet in turn, their insights highlight the insidious convenience of the epistemic erasures and colonial portability of more abstracted universalist frameworks of feeling. On the level of scholarship then, we must confront that the systemic refusal to take these conceptualizations of feeling as valid mirrors the historical and cultural denials of the feelings of peoples of color, indigenous peoples, and other disaffected marginalized populations. In this sense, they are subordinated as unfeeling within academic episteme too. In his study of Filipinx workers in the global care economy, scholar Martin F. Manalanson states, by disaffection, I emphasize not only emotional distance, alienation, antipathy, and isolation, but also to center this word's other connotation of disloyalty to regimes of power. I turn to queer and feminist color theorists whose underappreciated contributions to the intellectual history of the feeling, lack of recognition, erasing their theorization to the unrepresentable status of unfeeling the dominant episteme, which then positions them as thinkers uniquely attentive to this disaffected sense of unfeeling. In this tradition, I suggest we can track unfeeling as theory in the flesh, not as opposition to feeling, but the practice of protecting, prioritizing, cultivating feelings. In the groundbreaking volume, The Bridge Called My Back, Sherry Moraga speaks to the lived experience of women of color. She says, our strategy is how we cope, how we measure and weigh what is to be said and when, what is to be done and how, and to whom and to whom and to whom, daily deciding, risking who it is we can call an ally, call a friend. There's a necessary calculus of refusals. The apparent dulling or lack of affect can be a defensive tactic of everyday psychic survival in a world predicated upon racial and sexual violences. To cope with hurt and control my fears, I grew a thick skin, states Gloria Anzaldúa, or in the words of Audre Lorde, in order to withstand the weather, we had to become stone. Here, the appearance of insensitive unfeeling should be understood as a necessary safeguard for the sensitive psyche. And yet, as Enzel do acknowledges, the tactic runs the risk of being misread and vilified. I am not the frozen snow queen, but a flesh and blood woman with perhaps too loving a heart, one easily hurt. 
uncritical valorization of unfeeling as triumphant ignores its risks. For Lord notes that the cultivation of a stony exterior can lead to black women hurting other black women. We bruise ourselves on the other who is closest. Unfeeling is a dangerous gambit, but the pathologization of its manifestations obscures how cultivating unresponsiveness and inexpressiveness are effects of structural alienations of the culture of sentiment and symptoms of dissatisfaction. Nonetheless, these writings by queer women of color testify that unfeeling used strategically can be put in the service of the eventual flourishing of unfeeling, as with Anzal Dua's figure of the India Mestiza. She hid her feelings, she hid her truths, she concealed her fire, but she kept stoking the inner flame. Anzal Dua resists the pressures to disproportionately attend to the feelings of others. She still has to still her eyes from looking at their feelings, feelings that can catch her in their gaze and bind her to them. To choose not to care, not to be moved, pushes against the expectations of affectability. Anzal Dua works to try to consciously reshape her structure of feeling, not just through affirmation, but also destruction. She says, those I don't want, I starve. I feed them no words, no images, no feeling. There's a congruence then, I suggest, between these processes of disaffection and Jose Munoz's disidentifications. The suspension of relationality allows for creative remakings in the struggle towards the horizon of queerness. A radical politics of liberation requires a break from old feelings and attachments. Lingering with, rather than debunking the specter of unfeeling and its function of antisocial rebuttal to discourses of universal feeling, allows us for greater nuance in our understanding of politics and literature for the marginalized. In contradistinction to the insistence on affect in relation to attachments and porousness, we need to acknowledge too the affected importance of detachments and boundaries. What possibilities when we open up and explore the implication of Edouard Glissant's right to opacity in terms of feeling? Can a calculus of uncaring allow us to help to better care for ourselves and others? And so for today, I present two modes of unfeeling with their racialized genealogies, um, unsympathetic blackness and um, oriental inscrutability. If colonial intimacies of black enslavement, indigenous dispossession and Asian indentured servitude were the conditions of possibility for the hegemonic biopolitics of feeling, then how might the counter-intimacies of Black, Indigenous, and Asian solidarity remake that world by feeling otherwise? And so for the final part of my talk, I present two modes of unfeeling with the racialized genealogies. First, unsympathetic Blackness aligned with Indigenous disaffection, and second, the ambiguous place of Oriental inscrutability. I will sketch what I perceive as the dynamics comparative racialization and colonization at play, but also the potential for what I call counter-intimacies against the essentialization and polarization of racial difference as exclusionary and antagonistic to coalition building, and ultimately towards the possibility of different worlds. So back to the 18th century. According to philosopher Adam Smith's definition that opens the theory of moral sentiments, sympathy enables the recognition of feelings. Whatever is the passion which arises from any object in the person principally concerned, an analogous emotion springs up at the thought of his situation in the breast of every attentive spectator. In this regard, I want to emphasize the foundational nature of sympathy as more than a historical antecedent. Sympathy is the fundamental mode of apprehending affects, feelings, and emotions, and deeming them legitimate. Later, Smith abandons the guise of universal abstraction to reveal how the schematics of sympathy reproduce the material relations of colonialism when he shifts to the global stage. 
He complains, unlike civilized nations, these barbaric peoples of color are prone to falsehood and dissimulation, he says. It is observed by all those who have been conversant with savage nations, whether in Asia, Africa, or America, that they are equally impenetrable, and that, when they have a mind to conceal the truth, no examination is capable of drawing it from them. These Asian, Black, and Indigenous peoples deny affectability, not caring about whether they're sympathetic to Western scrutiny. And Smith is unsympathetic in turn, unable to recognize these racialized and colonial feelings, or colonized feelings. Following what De Silva would call affectability, he's unable to comprehend the possibility of the emotional complexity of peoples of color or the validity of their effective interiority as fully human subjects. To only acknowledge sympathy as feeling cross difference erases its violent origins in the matrices of domination that produce the system of racial difference, limiting our understanding of the hierarchies built into the concept that has been foundational to the geopolitical configurations of modernity, including the construction of the United States. To attend to the erasures of this unfeeling, we must read the archive in oppositional ways. In Smith, for instance, you can discern the anti-colonial disaffection of those equally impenetrable peoples of Asia, Africa, and America that prefigure 20th century articulations of third world solidarities. And so for my first example, in 1853, Frederick Douglass and Martin R. Delaney had a heated epistolary debate published in Frederick Douglass's paper that black scholars like Richard Yarbrough have considered representative persistent disagreements between black thinkers about political tactics. Overlooked in this iconic exchange though, is Delaney's recourse to narrative and what he calls an old Indian story about a white man and indigenous man hunting together. The white man unevenly distributes the game between the two of them. And eventually the indigenous man confronts his so-called friend on this inequality. Says Delaney, I feel somewhat as this Indian did. I grow weary of receiving the buzzard as our share while our tellers get all the turkeys. That is not the way to tell it to me. The dualities of indigenous settler and black white are distinct but overlap. Delaney identifies himself and by association other discontent black Americans with a frustrated unnamed Indian who is relegated to an abstract past. Hunting game analogizes the problems of American nation building where cooperative ventures with white friends reproduce structural inequality. Indeed, we might think of the work of Glenn Cotard in this respect. I feel somewhat as this Indian did, Delaney writes, re-theorizing the racial dynamics feeling between disaffected black and indigenous peoples dissociating from the right feelings of white people held up as the universal basis of sociality and citizenship. In his only novel, Blake, Delaney imagines the ways in which turning away from white feelings allows for a Black-led transnational insurgency of disaffected peoples for the transformative abolition of that world. What happens when Black, Indigenous, and other peoples of color are disaffected from colonial hegemonic structures of feeling? How might solidarity be produced by turning away from intimacies from with whiteness? For Delaney, White feelings are not one of the master's tools that can dismantle the master's house. Short plot overview. Henry Holland, who is eventually revealed to be the titular Blake, goes on a quest for justice for his enslaved family that takes him across North America, West Africa, and Cuba, tracing the global tentacles of the slave trade and subverting them by establishing a transnational network of revolutions of color foregrounded black participants. But before he connects with an insurgent community of historical black revolutionaries, he meets with the Choctaw Nation to discuss the complicated history of Black Indigenous coalition, which struggles with the Indigenous enslavement of Black people, Black participation in settler colonialism, and the erasure of Afro-Native peoples. And before these difficult conversations can take place, 
A white man who uses the N-word and is ostensibly linked to the Choctaw is pointedly removed from the room as a distraction by the nation's leaders. In both Delaney's scientific writings and his novel, scholar Britt Russert suggests that he explores how fugitive bodies become vectors of force and affect change in the world. And so briefly turning to his scientific writings, one of his essays, The Attractions of the Planets, argues that all scales of reality are governed by what he calls a law essential to matter, a mutual attraction and repulsion, which lead to the beautiful economy of the revolutionary arrangement. Reflecting these cosmic laws of reality that invalidate the flawed laws of humanity, the novel experiments with a revolutionary arrangement of Black, Indigenous, and other peoples of color, cohering both through mutual attraction and disaffected repulsion from white sentimentalism and its apparatuses. One could say that following the fear of a Black planet, there's a crawler anxiety about how such a world could exert its forces to pull other disaffected peoples into its orbit to reconfigure an entire system. These forces of attraction and repulsion are at work in the summit in Cuba, where our narrator tells us, there is a greater tendency to segregation instead of a seeming desire to mingle as formerly among the whites. Masses of the Negroes, mulattoes, quadrillions, Indians, even Chinamen can be seen together. In this line, we can note a number of key points. Foremost, the deliberate exclusion of white people in order to emphasize the convergence of peoples of color assembled around blackness listing of these people that suggest a spectrum of radical involvement according to race. This catalog perhaps indicating degrees of biological structural proximity from blackness to whiteness, the dubious inclusion of even Chinamen acknowledging Asian indentured servitude. Delaney also adds a footnote to his inclusion of the Indians noting, for many years, the Yucatan Indians taken in war by the Mexicans were sold into Cuba as slaves. A fact that authenticates the indigenous presence of this gathering and a reminder of shared histories of racial enslavement. Like the order of the revolutionary planets, these peoples of color are joined in revolutionary movements without the collapse of difference. Now for my second mode. Oriental inscrutability is perhaps the most coherent racialized mode of land feeling. And I turn to the work of Suisun Far, whose writing is and was generally perceived as humanizing the Chinese, where the cultural phenomenon of the yellow pearl at the turn of the century dehumanized them. However, in the response to her work, the New York Times dissented for the general claim for her only book, the short story collection, Mrs. Spring Fragrance. In it, the reviewer complains that the writer who's considered the point of origin for Asian North American literature disappoints those readers of the white race seeking access into the souls of her people. The exclusion era shaped expectations for literary representations that bear resemblance to the invasive scrutiny of the evolving apparatuses of US immigration. Insofar as the Chinese were legally defined as aliens ineligible for citizenship, implicitly at stake in the domain of literature is their eligibility for sympathy into the hearts of the American citizenry. Nonetheless, according to the New York Times, Sui Sin Far's Chinese characters sometimes remain inscrutable Orientals who are, in multiple senses, hard to read. In contrast to my earlier discussions of unsympathetic Blackness, variously gendered, and this insurgent convergences with indigeneity, the distinctiveness of oriental inscrutability lets us track how other racialized forms of unfeeling associated with immigrants manifest through the evolving American culture sentiment predicated upon structural violences against Black and Indigenous peoples. Its nameability and continued fetishization to me also indicate the relative respect allotted opacity racialized as Asian as opposed to Black affects, which were readily deemed illegitimate. A little bit of background. Edith Maud Eaton, who wrote under the Chinese name for the Narcissus flower, Susan Farr, 
grew up in Canada and lived variously in San Francisco, Los Angeles, and Boston, the notable peers in Jamaica and New York City. She was an active and prolific journalist and short story writer. Her only book, as I mentioned, was mentioned was published in 1912. From her, from her memoir, the Chinese people may have no souls, no expression on their faces, be altogether beyond the pale of civilization, but whatever they are, I want you to understand that I am. I am a Chinese, she declares. This is a moment as a kind of racialized coming out in her Chineseness that shatters how she, as a light-skinned mixed-race Asian person, is read phenotypically as white. This gesture of defiance comes from her recollection of an event involving anti-Chinese comments sparked by the transcontinental railroads running through this racist small Midwestern town. Somehow or another, her employer had mused as the opening of the conversation, I cannot reconcile myself to the thought that the Chinese are human like ourselves. They may have immortal souls, but their voices seem to be so utterly devoid of expression, I cannot help but doubt. In her response, Barr repeats and reworks his phrases concerning the dubious nature of Chinese souls and expressionless oriental faces, but she does not directly disprove the actual allegations of oriental scrutability. Instead, she says these tropes may be true, obstinately reaffirming the threatening instability of that epistemic effective indeterminacy. She says, after all, whatever they are, she is one of them. Um, and so indeed, they may be electable, unknowable, but nonetheless, what she is certain about is her political choice to self-identify as Chinese, despite its yellow peril connotations, and the immediate implications for her welfare in this dinner discussion where both her boss and her landlady have voiced anti-Chinese sentiments. Although in her writing, Farr draws attention to the disparity between the expectation of Oriental inscrutability and her own hypersensitivity as a disabled, possibly queer, mixed-race woman, she does not seek to fully abolish the multifaceted stereotype of Chinese in feeling. Her retort is not a reputation, but rather a reclamation of that form. At the end of her memoir, she expresses the desire to visit China before she dies, but archival evidence indicates she never did. Instead, the one place outside North America she lived was Jamaica, when in her memoir she identified herself as one of the brown people of the earth, a gesture distancing herself from whiteness and seeking affiliation with other peoples of color. Across her writing, there are glimpses of black, indigenous, and other women of color characters. As I argue elsewhere, these representations are suggestive of a rethinking, however flawed, a racial global hegemony characterized by Lee Slow as the intimacies of four continents towards the possibility of the counter intimacies of solidarity. And indeed, thinking back to Martin Delaney, as he says, he imagines the Negroes, mulattoes, Quadroons, Indians, even Chinamen, end quote, drawn together the Caribbean, vibrant with the potential of decolonial revolution. Reading her oeuvre then, can one hope that oriental inscrutability might be less furtive than fugitive, not just running away, but running toward, and turning these inexpressive Chinese faces to look away, what can one look towards instead? And so I wonder, what critical demeanors and ways of being together emerge when we reclaim unfeeling from its demonization as moral social, social annihilation? Consider how its appearance of negation does not obviate or even conceal, but can sometimes even enable generative and insurgent capabilities. The declaration of I don't care can meet we don't care, a mode of self-care grows into collective care. We can be disaffected together. It is no accident that during the later development of this entire project of unfeeling, I find myself writing about solidarities between Black and Indigenous and other peoples of color because that is what kept me alive. Detaching from and decentering hegemonic feelings is necessary for flourishing. Yes, we are unfeeling and perhaps should be feared, 
because that is the tool we can use to tear down dominant structures of feeling to build anew. Let us embrace this tactic as part of what Sarah Ahmed calls a killjoy survival kit. Now, empathy, not sympathy, tends to be the word that circulates today. The logic goes that sympathy was the false feeling that masks and reinforces power differentials, but empathy is a truer form of feeling cross-difference. Empathy is good, sympathy is bad. This semantic shift, however, disavows the episteme which produced universal sympathy by offering up a new term for the unchanged concept bound to the same biopolitical hierarchies undergirding the liberal politics of recognition. We need to reconsider how we approach anti-racist social justice work in our institutions, pedagogy, activist space, and the workshops. As we critique what Glenn Coulthard calls the liberal politics of recognition and inclusion, can we address the necessity of the anti-social and exclusionary moves by the marginalized? To notice how we are moved or not moved by others, structured by the governmentality of aesthetics and representation. Perhaps the, politics itself, the field of politics itself must change in the face of the incompatible, the inconsistent, the stubbornly uninstrumentalizable. Let us push beyond the claim that all feelings matter. Thank you.